Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Rob Kaufman, who is a senior partner at Notch 8 and co-founder of the Learn Academy. Rob joins us today from San Diego, California. Rob Kaufman, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software? Well, I think that one really important characteristic of maintainable software is that the people who work on it care about it. I see software development as a craft um, in the same way that woodworking and blacksmithing and pottery are crafts. And that the care that you put into any given craft really shows over time, right? There's a big difference between a dining table from Ikea and a dining table that a master crafts person has like hand-hewn and polished and put together, right? One lasts exactly until you move it. Uh, The other lasts potentially for generations, And so though there are a lot of individual practices that go into making software maintainable, that care, I think, is really a core piece of whether those things get done or not. So, you know, I like to see great test coverage, but you can have a test suite that's full of mocks that you can, you know, delete all the code and the tests all still pass, right? You can lie to yourself in a lot of different ways that the caring about what you're doing, not just checking the boxes, not just, you know, blowing through it real fast, I think is really the that core piece of what makes something maintainable over time. You know, when you talk about the idea of being a, that this is a craft, and I, th- I always think about the, and it's something I want to talk about a little later as well when we get into talking about Learn Academy and such, but the... I would imagine, like you mentioned pottery and woodworking, a lot of those types of professions these historically have had like some sort of apprenticeship model, like someone comes in and they're kind of working with someone that's been doing it for a lot longer and learning the preparation that goes into things. And I used to like prior to starting a software um, business many years ago, I dropped out of high school and I painted houses for three years and we worked on really high end fancy houses with really elaborate woodworking things. And we were going in and, and painting that or staining things and, and preparing things. And so I learned that it wasn't just going, being a painter wasn't slapping on a bunch of paint on the walls and wood. It's actually more time is spent preparing everything to put the paint on. The paint is just like the last step. Right. And so do you find that there's kind of an overlap with like bringing in like some sort of apprenticeship and like responsibility of, of a team or team members or senior tech lead type people of kind of treating newcomers into the industry as like kind of an apprentice or is that, what do you, what's your take on that? One of the things that I got lucky about early in my career is that I'm a second generation software developer. And so the idea of like knowing your roots and knowing where things came from, like was sort of not optional for me. Growing up, but that's made me, I think, really open to the idea that we're not inventing everything. You know, often in software, we think that we're just like, we're inventing the whole world, right? And you combine that with the sort of uh, startup mentality of we're going to disrupt every industry we touch. And we think that, you know, everything's brand new because we come up with it, right? And we're in a way rediscovering 
apprenticeships. We're rediscovering journeyman programs that existed hundreds of years ago and are well-established and that there's a ton of uh, philosophy and learning and understanding out there that went into like creating these programs that people now essentially just take for granted, right? That were probably groundbreaking programs, you know, in the Roman empire, but just seem obvious now. And yet in software, we often think we have to reinvent them completely. Right. So when I was first getting started, I, I started as an intern and, you know, got to pair with senior developers working on software products every day that seemed new and, you know, novel at the time, but like, that's how, again, most of these crafts have been done forever, right? Like you watch the master painter paint the wall and then, you know, he watches you paint the wall very carefully. And then after a while they stop watching you, right? Like that, that kind of process I think is really important. And then the other piece that you mentioned and what you just said is that the prep, right? You know, a master woodworker will spend three days working on the jigs and supports and like the pieces they need in order to make the thing that they're actually making. And then sometimes throw all that stuff away, right? Like they don't need any of that for the next project, maybe. Or maybe they do, right? But they work on their tools. They work on their, you know, on the, the things that support their work. And they consider that part of the job, right? And we sometimes don't in software. And I think that that's a mistake. And I think that the discovery part obviously is a big part of building good software and that we can trivialize that, right? Like when I meet uh, somebody who's just starting their coding journey, they think that writing code is the most important part about what we do as software developers um, and that they're going to spend 98% of their time writing code. And that's just not true of any given day as a software developer for all of us, basically. That, that, that's an interesting thing. That, you know, I encounter that with people on my team and, and a lot of people I talk to where they, you know, I think even if you ask people to estimate how much time they think that they spend looking at an editor, a coding editor, and they're producing code. And then I had a previous guest on who mentioned that like, there's been some studies that like approximately more than half of the time that you're looking at your editor, you're actually just reading existing code and you're actually spending more time reading than writing and to, to make sense of how you're going to make and trying to conceptualize something in your head. And, the, and it probably isn't, that doesn't mean the other half of that time is actually spent coding. It's probably trying to think, okay, well, what's the change going to look like? And then the code is like a small part of that. And so it's an artifact of all these other things that go into it. And then, you, you know, you mentioned test coverage as an important kind of trait or a thing to, for a team to be investing in because you get that quick feedback from your code changes. And then, but as you said, there's like, there's, we, we sometimes devalue the earlier discovery phase or like how soon can we start jumping into code to start working out the problem right now? It can be potentially premature. And so how do you help say junior developers kind of like navigate that and like understand there's going to be some other type of work that you might not have learned in your coding academies or in your in your CS degree um, at this point, because there they're trading all these other fundamentals of like how do you, what how does software even piece together and work together? How do you build things with it? But the, the I don't know that there's as much time spent on the like the how to gather requirements. How do you even have conversations as a team? How are we going to approach this? Yeah, I think that 
one of the ways that we we deal with that at Notch 8 is to just be really explicit about it, right? If I come to pair with you because uh, you're having a problem, the first thing I'm going to say is, you know, well, can we see your breakdown, right? And most of the time, the first time I do that, they go, what breakdown? I'm like, okay, well, what are we trying to accomplish? Well, here's my ticket, right? And they're working from the ticket description. It's like, well, okay, well, that's the elephant. Let's not try and eat the elephant all in one bite, right? Now let's break it down into these eight things, right? And yeah, I'm pretty good at this point with this experience at breaking those things down into a, into a set of steps. And then I revise that set of steps, you know, as I go, as we, as we make progress on the thing. And then one thing I've learned through trial and error is that I then have to be really clear to them and say, this is how I work. Right. I'm not doing this as a teaching exercise. Right. I'm doing this because this is what working looks like to me. Right. That this, you know, document essentially that we made of all of the different pieces that we did to do this thing is an artifact of the work that we're doing. And that that is what I'm doing when I'm all by myself. Right. If you weren't here, I would go through the same process. That is novel for most people. They assume that when you're working by yourself, you just do the thing. Right. And that you're, the only reason you're breaking it down into steps is for their benefit or for some sort of teaching purpose. And so you have to make that explicit to folks and you have to be kind of clear about that. It took me a long time when I was first getting started to realize you didn't have to do the whole thing in one go, that you have to break it down into smaller pieces. And part of that is in order to do exercises in school, you get spoon fed small enough things that you can do them in one go. And so that's a, a problem that I think that the art of software development has to, you have to kind of overcome. I think that helps also the, you know, there's the, uh, that issue of when do you think this feature is going to be done or depending on how your team organizes their work. But, you know, I, I, I've sat down with developers or in, we're in the middle of the pandemic. So I, you know, popped on a screen sharing session and they're, they're, hitting a wall or something I'm like, okay, well, let's look into this. And it's like, yeah, go back and let's look at the, the ticket that you're, you're working on. And then, you know, if it's just like, here's the description, but there's not been really any follow-up comments or any like subtasks or any sort of like steps of how you're going to get from here. I'm like, where are you in the process right now? And they're like, they're trying to like verbalize and explain, well, I tried this and this. And I'm like, all right, well, let's take a step back and like, let's break down. Like, what have you tried? Let's document that so that you can remind yourself again, are you going to villa finish this today? Or are you going to pick it up again tomorrow? How do you leave yourself like a nice little, like there's one discipline that I'm always trying to advocate for is like, how do you end your day is probably more important than how you start your day so that you can leave yourself some breadcrumbs or ideas of like, here, try this tomorrow. Like I hit my head against the wall here and you might always have that benefit of like a fresh perspective in the morning, but if kind of give yourself a little bit of a pointer so you're not having to spend your, you know, your evening kind of still ruminating on like, I couldn't figure that thing out. And so at least, you know, you've left that for your future self in some ways, or let's say you get sick and someone else needs to pick it up and run with it. And they're like, where the heck did you get? I can't make sense of it just by looking at the commits in this branch you have. So there's a lot of other challenges there too. But so another thing I want to, I'm curious about is do you within your team talk about things like use the metaphor technical debt very often? And if so, what's your take on that? So we do talk about technical debt, and part of that is as consultants, we have to manage client expectations around technical debt. Some clients really come to understand that over time, like that there's a training and a, an informational piece that we're responsible for helping them understand their software. And I think that technical debt comes in a, 
in, in buckets, right? Like there's short-term debt and long-term debt. And, and, you know, you can take that analogy and stretch it way too far. And one of the things that we talk to our clients a lot about is that there are trade-offs you make in order to, to meet deadlines, right? Then when in, and the more strictly we impose deadlines, the more trade-offs we're going to make, the more technical debt we're going to accrue. And we try and be really explicit with that when we, we discuss the work as we're talking about it, both internally and externally, and make sure that the clients have control over their business process, right? Like you need to understand that if we're going to push this feature that we thought was easy and turned out to be hard for these reasons, right? That, you know, you maybe you fully understand, maybe you kind of understand, but we should be able to explain to you in some way. And we're not just waving our hands at you that, you know, if we're going to rush to to solve that by taking these shortcuts, that that's going to be a couple extra days down the road, or it's going to mean that this other feature is going to be delayed and take an extra week to do and try and help them make more of those decisions. A piece of that is we always take notes whenever we have a meeting. One of our parts of our process is before a meeting starts with the client, a meeting document gets created. There's a member of my team who's responsible for doing that. And then that meeting document is shared amongst the whole team throughout that meeting. So everyone can add notes to it. And so when those discussions happen, they become part of the notes because we humans are imperfect at remembering conversations, right? And so you, it's just nice to be able to go back and say, this is when we described this. And we're not always right. You know, sometimes we go back to the notes and it turns out that we're misremembering and that, you know, that we're the ones who are corrected by that. But by having that record and by writing it down, we get the, a good perception and that we can keep more aligned on our communication. And I think that that's a really important part about managing technical debt. The other piece of technical debt that I think is important is that code, while it's running, doesn't just sit idle, right? Like the software underneath it moves forward in versions, security patches go out there and happen, um, vulnerabilities are discovered, new features are released in platforms, like all of these things, this churn is happening on all the underpinnings, on all the different layers, right? Give it another two years and the processor architecture is going to be changing out from under everybody, right? Like... Those things require upkeep in the same way that your house requires upkeep, right? Sure, your plumbing probably is fine for a long period of time. Um, And if you do some basic maintenance, it probably will continue to be fine. But if you don't do anything, then a pipe's going to burst and it's going to be a big disaster and that's going to ruin, you know, multiple days of your life. And so that sort of upkeep and maintenance, I think, is an important piece of technical debt that's kind of quietly accumulating in the background for folks that we don't always see. And we really try and make that visible to the people we work with and talk a lot about like what that looks like over time because it creates emergencies that don't need to exist, right? It creates pushes that don't need to exist. And if we can get out in front of it and plan for it, everyone can feel a little bit better about it. You know, and I want to dig into some more things related to client expectation management and such as well. But while we're on the topic of technical debt, what do you believe are some ways that you've seen developers talk about technical debt when it may not be something that, from your perspective, is actually technical debt? So technical debt can be used as a, as a, as a excuse, right? Like, and often it's an excuse for something we don't want to do. Um, we go back to that idea of being passionate about your craft and everybody's in one of the things that 
it was hard for me in the beginning when I first started managing people was to understand that things that I loathe doing, other people might actually like doing, right? I don't love styling pages, right? CSS bugs me for the most part. And I the fiddle with the, you know, something by 2PT and reload the page, fiddle with it by 2PT and reload the page. Like I just, that cycle isn't my jam. And so I might want to put cleaning up the UI in the technical debt pile, right? And just like not do it. Um, and that that isn't necessarily fair to the, the end product, right? Like that doesn't make the best product. And one of the ways around that is to have a diverse enough team that you've got folks that do want to do that work and to understand that the thing that you think is grindy and boring, someone else might think is fun and exciting um, and vice versa, right? The thing that they think is hard and impossible, you think is challenging and entertaining, right? And so by being flexible about like, just because it's Robbie's ticket doesn't mean Robbie has to do every single part of it. Then, and if we need to re-break things down so that you're doing the back end piece and I'm doing the front end piece, because that's where, you know, we're, we're going to be most productive that we can do that. Now, again, as somebody who cares about the craft, I want to learn about the parts I'm not good about. But still, I think that, you know, being able to say, well, you know, I've got to do this thing that I may be not as excited about. Does anybody, you know, have any ideas on how to make that better or maybe make it not have to happen at all, right? Uh, we had a project recently where uh, two of our developers were manually translating code. So they were, you know, we're writing in translations, so going in, finding all the strings, moving them into a translation file and then manually putting them in Google Translate and create getting the Polish version and the you know Spanish version and the, all of those things. The software they were working on, the app they were working on, had a built-in translate. And they just hadn't found the documentation for it. You know, the people, the couple of us who knew that that existed didn't find out that they were doing this for like a week. And it was just like, I feel I'm so sorry, but like literally everything you did this week can be done with a single command and it takes like five minutes. So, you know, I just think that, that communicating about what you're working on can help with that a little bit. Um, and that those things, again, can be labeled technical debt because we don't want to. I want to focus on a topic that is kind of near and dear to me, which is being a guest in another team, say the client side's code base. What do you believe are some important things to keep in mind when you're first diving into that team's code base? Anything you should be mindful about not doing? Yeah, I think that I have a tendency to hold very strong opinions. And something about my speech pattern makes people think that I'm being utterly definitive, even when I'm trying to ask a question. And so I have to really watch myself around uh, when I join a new team. I'm from Southern California. I put a question mark at the end of almost every sentence I speak. But people still think that I'm just like, Rob knows exactly what he's saying every time, no matter how much I try and like preface that. So I have to really be conscious of the fact that, that I come across that way. When I was first getting started, one of the people I worked with, she was amazing at being able to write in someone else's code style, right? She would come into your code and you wouldn't be able to tell which part you had written and which part she had written because she would write in your style. And I think that that's just respectful. And we want often to just impose our way as the right way whenever we're guesting in someone else's environment and that that's not the right approach. 
The other thing that I think is really valuable when you're working with a new team is to talk about the things they do well. I don't necessarily always remember to tell the members of my team when they're doing an awesome job. And it's easy for me to remember to tell them when they're struggling or things that I see that are wrong, right? And so I get explicit about it. And, and my team knows this, right? I have calendar reminders that remind me to like say something nice to somebody, right? Like so that I remember to do that part. Not because I don't want to. I just forget because I get busy doing other things. And I, it's just not naturally part of who I am. And so I, I force that. And especially when you're working with a new team, Going to them and saying, you know, hey, I really like the way you structured this controller. I'm a little concerned that there isn't, doesn't seem to be much test coverage there. And there seems to be a lot of logic in it. Is there a way we could refactor that? I see that you refactored this other controller. Is that a pattern we could follow? Is way better than, hey, there's a lot of stuff in this controller that's wrong. And you're just much more likely to be heard that way, I think. What are some of the best lessons you learned, say, earlier in your career with regard to being a good guy? Did you and you touched on the example of like coming across being very definitive with your language, and you've learned from that. Do you recall some examples, like a like a like a, a specific example in mind, where where you were just like, in retrospect, you're like, I would definitely don't ever want to make that mistake again. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there were. A few mentors really, you know, when I was first starting consulting that talked to me a lot about carving out your long term, right? Like make sure that there's a module only you know how to maintain, make sure that there's, you know, that the client always needs you, that kind of thing. And I, I started down that path for like a month or so on a project and just didn't feel good about it. And started like really like stressing about it, like having stress dreams about like that behavior and decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore. And so I, I just really changed directions. And so one of the things we talk about with our clients all the time is that we're more than happy to help you hire developers. We're more than happy to help you train developers. We're more than happy to work with your team to make sure that they're leveling up and to cross train people and fundamentally replace ourselves. Right. And when that time comes, Let's have a conversation about how that's going to happen, right? I talk to clients who are so scared of telling the people that they've been working with that they're going to work with someone else, right? And they, they plan these elaborate like, okay, on the 15th, we're going to cut their access off and I need you to be able to take over immediately. But I, we need to like sneak you in the system under my login first to make sure we have everything. And, you know, this whole like elaborate scheme of how they're going to handle the transition and when you leave Notch 8, I don't want you to have to do any of that. I want you to say, hey, Rob, I think next month we're going to switch over to some other developers. Or I think our team is big enough now that we can handle the next set of tasks. And that we then make a transition plan and help you do that. And three weeks after that, when you're like, hey, I don't understand this module, I want you to reach out to me and say, Rob, we don't understand this module. And not spend three weeks like trying to backwards engineer it, right? I work a lot in other people's code. And there are some times that I could save a month if I could get a 15 minute phone call with somebody. Right. I think that's a, that's a good, good lesson and definitely don't want, or at least in, in the client services world that we both exist in the, I never want our clients to feel like they're stuck with us. Right. And like they, that they, that they need us to such a degree that like they couldn't operate their business without us in a way. And like that to me, it doesn't do it. feel like we're doing them uh, just not giving them the sort of a, 
what they really need from us, I suppose. But the I'm but it's also I feel like that can also apply to the individual like employee within a team that you can go down that same path and create a sense of whether you're doing intentionally or not, a sense of job security because you you're the person that's kind of carved out this area of, of the product or the applications or the platform that you're kind of the go-to expert on and you've been doing it for several years. And now the team, the company is very dependent on you and is nervous about you leaving at some point or you retiring. And like, well, then no one else knows how to do it. If what, what happens if X gets hit by a bus is always like the thing I hear as from client on the, from the client side. And it's never great. Like what happens if someone's gonna get hit by a bus? Like, like that's what they're nervous about. Bus factor is great, right? Like the fact that that's how we decided to talk about it as an industry, I think is, <laughs> you know, this sort of dark humor. Ultimately, silos are bad, right? We know that in the thing that about, about that kind of silo is they're not just bad for the company. They're bad for you, right? As a developer, when you silo yourself, you often limit your growth. There's a developer friend of mine who used to say to me back in like 2007, 2008, Rob, I'm not going to have to learn Ruby, am I? Like, I'm a Java developer. I'm happy being a Java developer. I don't ever want to have to learn a new language. I just want to be a Java developer. And to me, that's just sad, right? Like, that's just a lack of, of, of enjoyment in what you're doing, that you're just like, I don't want to do anything, right? I don't, want to, I don't want to be, you know, doing this. And, like, that is such a sign of burnout to me. Um, and that those silos often, the, the people like really holding their silo tight are generally burned out, right? I, I, I find that those two things correlate really heavily. And the thing that I found is really interesting is that by being that more open person like you're describing is the work comes back around, right? Like we have clients that leave, they move on to other positions and then they reach out to us again. We have clients that grow their teams and then they'd want to do a big sprint. And so they bring us back in to provide burst capacity, right? And that that revolving door often has led to uh, moments when we need them, like, you know, clients when we need them the most, basically, right? Like if we have a project that backs out or we have something that, you know, we're, we're a little low on work, like just reaching out and telling everyone it's somebody you didn't like from five years ago, you didn't expect to hear from. That's like, I have a project. Let's start tomorrow. Right. And that, that just sort of rescues you in that moment from having to make decisions you don't want to make. And so those relationships and making the, the people relationships really healthy is so much more valuable than the, the fear based, like holding tight to your thing. And the other thing that I think is important is that you, I'm sure have seen projects where there was a single developer who did the whole thing. And even the best and brightest of us can do terrible things if left to our own devices for too long, right? We need someone else to be bouncing our ideas off of. It's true. There's, I think that's a very common thing for, for my company to do is to come into scenarios where there's been one, maybe two developers that have ever worked on a project or it's gone through a series of say freelancers. Then the company's like, okay, we're, this isn't working. We need, we, we have to keep like onboarding a new freelancer and like, we only need these few new things, but then the, like, then that freelancer goes away at some point and they're like, okay, now we, we need to kind of step up to maybe working with an agency or, or cause we're not ready to maybe hire our own full-time employees yet to do this full-time or they had a, they were a company where they had one developer that might've had a small team, but now they've been there by themselves, themselves for several years. And then they don't have any, like a peer 
And so they go looking for a job so they can have peers again as a software developer. And the company's just like, what are we going to do without X? Like when, when that person leaves, we're screwed. And so they know everything. And then you find like, oh, they didn't really invest a lot of time in a test coverage because there was no one else kind of holding them in check about it or they didn't see the value in it and they knew everything, kept it in their head or documentation. Why? I know everything. It's in my head, right? So you start making all these, uh, you start chipping away at some of the things you would normally hopefully have a team help reinforce by the best practices around, you know, with that. And so that's, those are always kind of an interesting, challenging thing to come into and then help reset those expectations for clients because those people sometimes are seen as like heroes or like these wizards because they're able to do things so quickly but, you know, I, I find myself recently having conversations with, you know, I was talking to a, uh, a client and they're like, why is it taking your team so much longer to deliver features than this other person was? And I'm like, well, they had a different definition of done. You know, they didn't write any tests. They didn't do these other steps that we were, we believe need to happen so that you can protect, make sure we're not breaking things. And it's a new app for us. So that's, those conversations are always awkward because I'm like, well, on one hand, you saved a lot of money for several years by not doing that stuff. But now you're going to have to pay more to get this stuff done because we believe in doing it differently. And we're not going to just, you can't transport all the information from that person's brain to our brains, brains, you know, plural, and have multiple people get up and running with your application, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, with that, you know, let's talk, take a moment to talk about Notch 8. So what does your team specialize in? So we build web and mobile applications. We do a lot of Ruby on Rails development. We do a lot of React Native development. We haven't necessarily pigeonholed ourselves into a single industry. We've, we've kept things really broad. Uh, we do have been doing a lot of like library and open access repository systems lately. Um, that's just a, there's a, this open source community called Samvera that is this uh, large group of, of universities that we've been working with working with and then that's been really interesting work. I really like the dichotomy. Librarians think that a long time is three to 400 years. And as a web guy, I think a long time is like six months. And so like, that's an interesting, you know, set of, of constraints. But, uh, but yeah, we, we help clients both in early stages where they're first like coming with ideation and doing wireframing and you know coming up with their architecture but also, you know, rescuing applications from existing teams or helping teams level up. The other thing that we do quite a bit of is the, the DevOps side of the house. So helping teams um, change their deployment processes and the, like, the way they deal with their servers. Um, and we found that a lot of our clients don't necessarily have someone on their team that is managing the server stack. And that they're, you know, maybe they've got some stuff up on AWS and then you say, well, okay, well, what's your backup policies? And they go, yeah, we should really get on that. And so like, you know, making sure security patches are getting done, making sure monitoring is happening. I talked to somebody two or three months ago who found out that their payment processing hadn't been working for a week. And that's why they were like, that's why they were talking to us. Like, that's just like, that can't ever happen again because that's awful. And so, you know, having somebody who's sort of watching the house can be really important. And we've been doing that both with projects that we maintain, but also with um, existing dev teams and helping them learn more about what they're doing and better understand those pieces. And then also kind of like providing that framework and structure for them. We'll be back with our interview with Rob in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you 
Yes, you, the one listening to this podcast in their car, not the one listening to it in their headphones. You can ignore this part. But since you're in your car, I wanted to sing you a song. Baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark mommy and for those listening with their headphones I just want to say thank you for making time to listen to maintainable as well all of you please go to twitter and let everybody know that I'm an amazing singer but also if you could write a review on apple podcast that'd be awesome do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Rob Kaufman. I know that there's a lot of uh, people listening out there that might, you know, they might need services from teams like Notch A. And, you know, I was thinking a couple days ago, I was talking to a potential client and they're new to the company. And they've been there for like six months and they're trying to make sense of what had been built by a larger team, you know, over the past two to five years. They're like, we need someone to come in and just kind of take stock of like, we have really high AWS bills and we don't know what all this stuff does. They're like, can you come in and just help make sense of this? And so for those as freelancers, you could offer your other skill sets outside of just being a coder and be like, oh, can I, I can maybe take a look at what you're paying for to take into that stuff and see if we can shut some stuff down or consolidated a little bit more so that you're not spending so much because everybody's afraid of breaking things, but there's a lot of other opportunities and ways to help that it's not just contributing code as well. One of the things that, you know, knowing that you, you know, run an agency or a consultancy, when you're recruiting developers who are going to be producing code and say consulting directly with clients, what traits are you looking for? Because it may be different than those that are looking to hire people for just to be part of their production team on their, you know, internal product or their internal product team. So one thing I will say is that I've had a lot of the, like, what make good consultants conversations. And I know that there's this philosophy of it having to be all rock star teams. And all rock star teams are really hard to work with because they tend to trash hotel rooms, right? And uh, have messy breakups and all of the, the other parts of that analogy, I think, can often hold true. So we really work for look for people that are good communicators and they care about what they're doing. I've sort of redefined that over the years. I used to think that that meant you had to, you know, eat, sleep and breathe coding, whether you were working on it or not. Um, and I don't think that's true anymore. I think that the people who come in, do their job, go home and do something else completely, if that's totally reasonable and, and completely legitimate, what matters is that when you're working or when you're focused on your code, that you care about what you're doing and that you're interested in improving that and growing over time. When I interview someone, I wanna be about three quarters of the way through the interview before they know that it's happening, right? Like if I wanna interview you, I'm gonna be like, hey, you know, I heard you're looking for some, you know, for a job, let's grab lunch. I know a lot of people, like help me understand what you're looking for and you know, we could talk about some ways that I can help you find whatever that is, right? And it isn't until the last 10 minutes of that conversation that you realize that this whole time I've been really interested in hiring you and that we're going to try and see if we can make an offer work because I want it to be really low key. I want to find out what you're interested in. I want to find out if you're going to be a good fit on the team. And then I care just a lot more about that part than I care about anything else. And then we work with a lot of junior developers, which is rare for a consultancy. And we've learned that you have to sort of structure that. So we keep a ratio of uh, no more than two to one. So 
for every senior developer, there can be two junior developers. And then when you get off on that, then you get to start to have problems. So if you have six junior developers and one senior developer, that senior developer spends all of their time mentoring and correcting and, and fixing things that the junior developers did. And then they basically are playing cleanup for the juniors. We go back to that discussion we were having earlier about the um, that apprenticeship or like journeyman type model, right? That's not how that model works, right? You, like, you don't paint the wall and then the master painter comes in and fixes it, right? Like the master painter comes in and, you know, and paints the wall after you did all of the prep work and did kind of some of the sketch stuff that you need to learn how to do, right? And so I think often of when I was in school, there was a, a, a master level potter who taught pottery classes on the side and he had to build, he got a contract with NASA to build drying racks for space shuttle tiles. So they needed to be able to fire the shuttle tiles in a very high heat and it turned out ceramic uh, little ceramic like racks were the right way to do that. And that they, they could have bought them from some big manufacturer, but of course, you know, like Boeing was going to charge them a hundred thousand dollars per little thing. And he could bang out 10,000 of them in a weekend. Right. And he got all of his people that were learning. Right. And he showed them how to do each one. And then he went through and corrected them as they were doing them as they just went into manufacture on it. Right. And that's what the process should look like. Right. And so by kind of keeping that model and keeping that faith and, and being you know sincere with people about that and their expectations, um, we've been really successful there at being able to bring in folks that are a little more green and level them up more quickly. Right. Historically, it's 10 years to get from junior to senior. And I want to see it be five because we need more top level talent in the industry. And that's not going to happen if we just have to wait. You know, one thing I'm, I'm actually curious about, um, you know, that timeline there. Um, I don't recall the, all of your, how, what you were doing before Notch 8, but how would you have rated yourself on the, or ranked yourself in the junior, mid, senior level range when you started Notch 8 and started actually having clients and stuff like that? I, I don't know, right? Like, so I got really lucky that I started Ruby in 2003, which makes me like ancient in the Ruby community <laughs> that I was doing Ruby basically full time when Rails came out. And so I got a big head start there. So even though I didn't have a lot of uh, development experience on the whole, because Rails was so new and so hot in, you know, 2005, 2006 timeframe, I was, you know, kind of punching above my weight class, I think, in a big way then. And that the tooling and the constraints and the things that made Rails great were allowing me to produce at a higher level than I would have been able to otherwise. So when I first consult started consulting, I left a job where I was just, I think my title was just developer. And it wasn't senior, it wasn't junior, it wasn't anything. Um, and then, you know, went into, I'd been doing some freelancing on the side at that point, um, building applications. So I, I don't, didn't spend a lot of time thinking about titles at that point. No, I didn't, I didn't either. And, you know, I think when, it, in, in retrospect, I'm always like, people are like, well, you've been doing, you, you had these opportunities with that popped up. And I'm like, I think it was some of it to some degree was, I feel like I was ignorant enough 
to go like, oh, maybe I can run a business, you know, in some ways. And I think if I had had more experience, I might have maybe at least had a couple more conversations with myself before I decided to do that. But the, the people that we hire, you know, in, uh, coming out of boot camps sometimes or mid-level developers that we bring in, like some, they have sometimes a lot more skill set than I did when I was starting my first few projects. And then I'm always like, so it wasn't that I was like a senior developer that was like a super experienced person. It was just, I was in the right place at the right time and I had enough skills to be able to do things, but it really took me getting to work with other people and building a team and be like, oh, now I understand these other good habits and traits and building a craft because I didn't really get that experience from none of my previous jobs ever had anyone that was encouraging me to write automated tests. That wasn't even really a discussion. It was like, Testing didn't even come up outside of like you test it because you click around and make sure it works. But no one said like, oh, you can automate this a little bit more until I really started working with some other people, like specifically in the Ruby world. I did a little bit of test coverage stuff with PHP prior to that, but not to the extent because Rails was like just kind of made it, built it in as like a default assumption. You should be doing this. It was like we're going to encourage you. So I think that was good. You know, try not to go too far back into the story time part of the conversation here, but I think that that helped the industry, I think, in a lot of ways by just making an assumption that when you generate some new code, there's going to be some tests that come along with it. You might as well start filling them in and writing some tests to protect yourself. This is what people in our industry should be doing. And so peer pressure and constraints are really valuable. Like they really help us make good decisions. I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you and your company decided to start a coding school. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. So when I first started Notch 8, one of my goals uh, was to learn what made projects succeed and fail as rapidly as possible. Um, and instead of doing the startup train where, you know, you work on one and maybe you win the lottery and maybe the last paycheck bounces over, you know, sequentially, I wanted to do a bunch of them in parallel so that I could learn more about it. I was very, very, very fortunate that I knew by the time I was like 12 or 13 that I wanted to be a software developer. And I knew that I wanted to run my own businesses, that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, and so I was kind of on that track from an early point in time. Uh, my goal had been to start a business by the time I was 30. I started Notch 8 when I was 26. So I was feeling like, okay, what's next, right? But I wanted to learn more about what made this project successful with the idea that Notch 8 would essentially 37 signals someday, right? Like that we would be a consultancy until we were a product company. Right. And at the time I, you know, thought two, three years, right. Then I'll be ready for that. And obviously it's been a whole lot longer than that. And if you had told me back then that the first product to spin out of Notch 8 would be a face-to-face -face service, I would have laughed at you and been like, no, bro, I'm an internet guy. Have you heard about it? It turned, but it turned out that in 2014, there weren't any code schools in Southern California. We'd been working with the code school in Portland, Oregon. Uh, called Epicodus. Um, They're fantastic. And we wanted to replicate the success we had with our interns there in Southern California. And there just weren't any. And I had this week of perfect storm. I had a good friend of mine was giving up his really awesome apartment in North Park in San Diego, like above a brewery, to go to Omaha to learn to code. And I'm like, that's you know, that doesn't seem right. Like, why should you have to go to Omaha to learn to code? Um, and then one of my wife's cousins, like, wanted to come to take us to dinner so that he could talk about possibly doing a code school. And then I went to the SD Ruby group, uh, which is the Ruby on Rails group here in San Diego. 
that night there happened to be five people hiring rails, you know, trying to hire rails developers and like one kind of scared person raising their hand saying they were looking for a job. And one of the companies that had been a big part of the community was talking about moving to Austin because they couldn't find enough talent here in San Diego. And so on the way home that night from the bar, I'm just like, I think we should start a code school. Like, I think we have to do it. And so I talked to my business partner about it uh, the next day during our stand-up meeting. And his response was, F you, Rob, there goes my weekend. And all weekend long, he's texting me like, these are people who own code school domains. Here's a business plan for a code school. Here's what a budget might look like. And we knew we needed someone with an education background that knew what an education like organization needed to look like and who had more of the business acumen because the code school is a very different business than the consultancy. But it turned out that I knew someone like that that was ready to, to jump in. And so we brought Chelsea, who's the CEO at Learn Academy, on board as part of the partnership. And it just sort of took off from there. So it just was really about having the right people at the right time, which was kind of the point. Like one of the things about Nachi is I've got this great team that we can do little experiments. And there have been a bunch of little businesses that didn't happen over the years, right? And then we find one that takes off and it can happen and spin off and, and become a separate entity. And so that was really cool. The thing I didn't understand about the code school at the time was how emotionally rewarding it would be, right? Like every business talks about changing people's lives, right? And I don't think Learn actually changes people's lives. I think we provide them tools to change their own lives. But meeting someone who dropped out of college three times and thinks that, you know, they're 24, 25 and doesn't really think that they have much of a future financially uh, one of our very first students, I remember her dad called me and was like, she drops out of everything. Why is this going to be different? You know, why should we, why should we, and her, her mother and I pay for this. Like she drops out of everything. And, and it made me so mad. <laughs> I'm like, no, she's going to be a software developer come hell or high water. I ran into her about two years after she completed the program. And she's like, Rob, Rob, like I just got promoted to developer. I'm not a junior developer anymore. I'm just a developer now. That's amazing, right? Like that just feels so good to, to do hard things with people. The boot camps are hard. Learn is hard, right? It is just, it's, it's a big emotional journey for people. Um, I thought when we were first starting, it would be like 95% teaching people to code. And it's not, it's like maybe 75% that, that extra 25% is about, and, and not even just to code, but the like software part. That extra 25% is about like, how do you get a job? Like, how do you interview people? But also like, how do you feel good about what you're doing? How do you have confidence in what you're doing? Like the imposter syndrome in bootcamp students is epic. And so we spent a lot of time on that, that I didn't anticipate at all. Yeah, I think about, you know, you mentioned Epicotus. We've been working with them for a really long time as well. And some of our, our more senior developers came directly out of Epicotus, right? And so I appreciate that these things, because like, there was a period of time prior to Epicotus when we were kind of looking around being like, I don't know who we're going to hire because we're not able to compete with like a really large funded company. There's like New Relic had decided to open up more offices here in Portland and Airbnb was rumored to be moving up here. And they're like, oh, it's going to be operational type work. I'm like, they're going to hire software developers here too. I just know it. And I'm like, we're going to, it's going to be really hard for us to find talent. And then there was a period of time where like, we may need to like rethink this whole business model because that something like Epicota is actually like drastically, I think in some ways saved us and gave us a whole new pipeline of people to bring in, intern, 
mentor and just actually went from this idea of being like, we have to hire these, you know, senior developer people to work on these projects to be like, no, we can, we can groom people over the long run. That could be, and it totally changed our dynamic of how we worked internally and how we thought about like the forcing us in some ways of rethink how we approach projects so that we know that there's going to be need to be a successor to every project we work on. It might be something that someone else that's going to, we're going to hire one day, someone here will leave, um, you know, at some point and that, that happens and our clients know that they're going to not need us one day. So it's always thinking about like, how do we make sure this is software is approachable to junior mid-level people. So let's imagine that there's a few junior to mid-level developers listening and they don't feel like they're getting enough, say, time and or support from senior members of the team. I know you mentioned that Notchate has like a two-to-one ratio type of approach. What advice could you offer them on how to start being maybe more of an advocate for themselves within their current team so that they don't assume that they just need to go look for a new job because the grass will be greener over there? Mentorship is funny. Um, and it's in the, the code schools are such a game changer as far as being able to hire I never thought that Learn, when it was first starting, I always thought that Notch 8 would help Learn, right? But Learn helps Notch 8 so much now. 10 of the 18 developers on my team are Learn alumni at this point, right? And, you know, some of them are now senior developers having worked in the industry with, you know, with experience for, you know, five years. And so that pipeline has been super strong for us, but it also helps us hire seniors, because seniors want to mentor. In the martial arts, there is a certain period, point where you get to, right? You know, usually if it's like Taekwondo is like your first black belt, like different, you know, dojos have different systems, but you, where you cannot advance further without teaching. You get to a certain level where unless you come to at least teach the kids class, you cannot go to the next level. And that is fundamentally true of software development. Right. Like I learn so much every time I sit down and pair with somebody, even if it's their first day. And it's sometimes it's silly things like the absolute absurdity of the fact that head and header in both exist in HTML mean two completely different things. And the one that you think is the one, you know, like from from literacy is different than the, the one that we actually use. Right. Like those kinds of things. You don't look at that stuff in detail after the first six months very much. And we start to stare at them closely. You're like, this is really bizarre. Um, so like, but you know, often big things. And so I think that ultimately that teaching is really important and that most of us come to that one way or another, right? Over time, we come to this place where we realize we need to be mentoring. Um, sometimes it's out of a respect for the people who mentored us and just the feeling that we need to pass it on. But at the end of the day, like you, your learning gets you know stagnant if you don't start teaching at some point. And so to the juniors and mids out there that feel like they're not getting enough of that mentorship, the, the big key is to ask, like put yourself in their shoes. We often think, oh, I can't ask so-and-so, they're very busy, right? And they won't have time. And the thing is, <clears throat> they will most of the time have time. They will be able to find time often. And they just don't, it doesn't occur to them, right? Because they're not thinking about you when they're not looking at you. Because humans often aren't thinking about other people that we're not looking at. We mostly think about ourselves. Like that's how we're built. And so, you know, if someone comes up to me at a meetup and says, hey, Rob, you know, can I, 
get an hour of your time. I have some questions about the industry and I'd really like to pick your brain. That's incredibly flattering. Like that feels really good to have that question asked of me. And so like, I get that it's scary. I get that it's intimidating to do that, but that people are way more approachable than you think. The other thing I'll say is make it easy for them to say yes, right? It drives me crazy when I say, hey, you know, I'd love to spend an hour or two chatting with you about that. What, uh, what's a good time for you? Please do not reply back, oh, my schedule is open. That does not help me at all. That does not put a meeting on our calendar. You can say, you know, I'd like to, you know, I can meet on Tuesday at 10 or Wednesday at 11. If neither of those times work for you, I have other availabilities. But give me something that I could just say yes to, right? Don't make me think too hard about it. Um, And if I forget, follow up. Because I probably just meant to do it and forgot. I probably didn't like, I wasn't lying to you when I said I wanted to talk to you. I just got distracted by something and didn't, you know, didn't follow up. And I'm going to feel bad when you, when you reach out the second time and like make sure that it happens. So those little things that like little extra 10% of effort really can make it happen when it doesn't happen otherwise. I think that's like some good advice there. I think about the ambiguous aspect of like a Slack message coming around, like, Hey, can I get some time with you to help me pair on this thing? Or I'm having some trouble with something. And it's like, what do you need it like right now or later tomorrow? Like, when does this need to happen by? Right. And so like, like I got, you know, I, I got that, I literally had that question pop up and slacked me like an hour towards the end of my day. And I was kind of like thinking about how I'm winding my day out. And I'm like, shit, is this something that I really need to jump on right now? And then, so I had to ask like, well, how urgent is this? And they're like, oh no, no, we, we could do this. Maybe early next week would be fine. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a completely different thing than me starting to like, I have this initial anxiety of be like, I don't want to like let them down by saying I really kind of want to wrap my day up and not go dive down this rabbit hole that potentially could take a couple hours. Um, so like, I think having that context definitely helps. Do you, I'm out of curiosity, uh, do you do anything with like, you mentioned like with the ratios of two to one, but do you also have like set specific time where people are expected to pair up with juniors so that they don't have to ask? So one of the things that we manage with our schedule is that every developer is, the goal is to have every developer on two projects at any given time. And that that is, again, is something that, that maybe isn't as, as common for, for uh, consultancies. But one, I like having two things that I'm doing because if I get really stuck on one, I go work on the other one and it always locks the, the first one loose like every time. But it also um, provides us a lot of stability. Um, one of the things when I was starting my consultancy I didn't want to do is the feast and famine thing that so many of them do because... Quite frankly, I don't sleep for like a week if I have to lay people off and I just don't want to be in that situation. And so we avoid that. And we've been working hard to line the schedules up now. So, you know, if you're going to work on Project X on Monday, then the juniors that are on Project X are going to be on Project X on Monday too. And if you're on Project Y on Tuesday, then we make sure that the folks that are on, you know, that everybody is on Project Y on Tuesday. And it seems like that should be really hard, but it's not. It, it, it's a little bit of a puzzle and maybe there's one or two that don't work out in any given week, but for the most part, getting everybody lined up is, is pretty simple. Uh, and that makes the pairing really easy. Cause you know that, you know, reaching out to Robbie's no big deal. He's already working on this project. And so I'm stealing two hours of his time from the thing he's already doing. And that's way easier to justify. 
The other thing that is a goal is that I am not on any projects as the lead anymore. And that we've been driving hard to do, to remove me as the lead from, from as many things as possible. And that that allows me to act as a cavalry and just like ride in to whatever and pair and do more of that work, which I really enjoy doing. It's really hard for me to let go. I'm not good at it and I'm working hard to be better at it. But I think that the more we can have other folks leading things, the more I can act as support and that that has been been another valuable thing we've been doing. Nice. Yeah. And one of the things that we've done was a couple, I think it was about, I feel like in this COVID time, I'm misremembering how long ago things are, but I think it was about two years ago, we had a couple of junior people that we had just hired. And I remember having a one-on-one with one of them and they're kind of talking like, well, I don't feel like I'm getting enough time from so-and-so to help out with, you know, to do pairing, like, cause they're, they've been really buried on this project. And so they're, they seem like they're stressed and I don't want to bother them. Like they could see them, they're behind schedule on something and like they're fidgeting a lot at their desk or whatever back you know, when we were all in the office together. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, this is really inter- like, it's really unfortunate that you don't feel like you're getting the support you need. And so we ended up taking this idea of like, well, what if we just have, we set up a rotation schedule for pairing. Like it's going to go on the calendar by default. You're going to have this set of time set aside for a couple hours. We're going to do pairing, whatever you're working on, the two people that are pairing can decide which project you're going to pair on. We're not doing the model where necessarily it's like the specific project, the same project, but like a way to expose people to other client projects and other things just to get a fresh perspective sometimes too. And so we set up like a schedule so that it became more of a, um, okay, you know, like every, every three weeks you're going to pair with this one person at the same time on Tuesday unless there's a scheduling conflict and you just, you two need to find another time to do that. But rather than having the junior need to ask, we decided that it's like, let's make an assumption that there's an expectation. They're both going to show up and pair on something. And it could be either of yours project. And you two can figure that out every time. And that I felt like relieved a lot of the struggles, the juniors and the new people that we're bringing in were for like feeling like they were bothering someone. And we worried like, Oh, we're going to, can we afford to do this? And rarely does that ever actually end up being like, that doesn't come up anymore. Now it's just like two years in, we're doing this all the time. And we're, we, we just brought in a couple of new people. So we're shifting the schedule around. I'm no longer, I'm, I'm actually reintroducing myself back into the pairing rotation so that it's not just, cause right now I'm now, I'm now the uh, kind of like you like where that Calvary thing comes in where, Oh, there's something, maybe we, maybe Robbie can help out with this particular thing. And so that I come in unexpectedly when there's a problem and then I don't feel like I get to really share like some of the other things I might expose people to and like think about if it wasn't under a high pressure, like we need to fix this thing right away versus like, so you're working on something new. Let's that, that, that sounds fun. Let's, how would I, how am I going to show you that? Because rather than just be like the rescue type person and, and things. So because you could be, as you said, you become legendary as this person that can kind of come in and do those things. And then, then the team's like, well, if Robbie's too far away from us, is he still available when we really need him? And then, but I'm like, I'm, I, I, I can do more than that, I promise. So, but it's about making yourself available. And so I want to remove those, the request to be like a junior level, level thing, or if anything, I would love that to be more of a senior, like it's your responsibility to make sure you're, you're finding time to re, to pair with other people. So. Well, and I think that we often worry too much about the levels there. Two seniors pairing together can be extremely, like you can learn a lot. One of the things that came to mind as you were talking about this, the story of the junior didn't feel supported is like, okay, what can that junior be doing to help 
with the person who's buried, right? Like, do they need somebody to just like help them like get some tests that are tangled, like straightened out so that they can go work on the next piece? Like, is there some view work that needs to be done that can be just, you know, we'll just blow it in hard right now and then I'll go in and polish it. Like, how do you make that time for yourself later? Right. And that the, those, those things empower and give confidence to the, the developers and that that lets them kind of take their own destiny in their hands and gets you away from the sort of almost whiny, like, but no one's paying attention to me kind of thing. It's like, well, make that for yourself a little bit and that that empowerment can be really, really useful. The other thing I heard you say is you have to manage your own legends a little bit and that that is really always entertaining to me a little, you know, the, the, you're right. You do get this sort of mythic, like, oh, well, they can fix it kind of thing. And it's hard not to like that a little bit sometimes, but it is, uh, I think, fundamentally important for the for everyone to feel like they're peers, right? That, you know, even the most junior member of my team might know the mob X trick for debugging that I don't know that unsticks three days of my work, right? And that that acknowledging the reality of that and being sincere about that, I think is really good. The other thing about bootcamp students is they all come with all these vast other experiences, right? And so, for example, we have a member of our team who had been in social work before deciding to become a software developer. I can't tell you, like, there's been three or four times over the last year or so when things have been just crazy hard where them having that experience has led to advice that we really needed, Right. You know, like knowing like, the, no, this is the right way to approach this situation um, because I have all this training and this completely separate discipline and acknowledging the realities of that, I think, is really valuable. I think that was another thing we, we learned through the boot camp experiences. Very, very similar is that we were hiring people that were making career shifts and we didn't need to teach them how to show up and just be an employee like they they were probably potentially even, a you know, they were could employ way before they ever found us, right? They, they just wanted to reapply that to a different sort of discipline. And, and I think you mentioned the whole like, oh, we realized that like not everybody needs to go like think about software development in terms of like this is my, you know, we touched on craft, but like this is the thing that I'm passionate about above all else. Like I have people on my team that don't want to think about coding whatsoever once they wrap up and close their laptop for the day. And I totally respect that. I mean, like we need people like that too because they're going to be good at getting the things done and not like burning themselves out hopefully over time like they it's good self-care in some ways and so I, there's other levels of respecting where people are coming from and bringing in those different perspectives and our industry needs that because otherwise it's you know just ends up looking a lot like us you know and it's very important they're also less prone to the shiny thing problem those super passionate developers always want to use the absolute latest and greatest technology and the folks that are there to do the, do the thing and do it well are a little more comfortable using something they know is going to work and a little less, um, have less need to just tear everything out and replace it with whatever today's JavaScript framework is. And I think that that's an interesting uh, voice of reason sometimes in the room of like, but do we really need to do the thing that's alpha 0.01? it is, is a good thing for a dev team to hear sometimes. It's true. Bringing in people that are seeking stability in their life because they need that 
having you know there's a there's a good 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 counterbalance there that I think every team and we also need people that are kind of pushing like well maybe we are we why are we still doing it the way we've always been doing it you need that as well and so like there's a good um, kind of ebb and flow you need to kind of navigate there. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So a couple of quick last questions for you, Rob, you know, and do you have any advice for developers who might be feeling like their team hasn't really been able to embrace what they what they hear people like us talk about, like, you know, the industry stuff talks about best practices and like automated testing. And we haven't really embraced it as a team yet. And they're like, well, do I just need to go and find a new team? Or is this something that I can actually help change within my current team? Do you have any advice for them on how they could try to like navigate that? So I think one of the secrets of the industry is that TDD is like flossing, right? Everyone knows that they should floss and we should all probably floss more than we do. And every time you go to the dentist, they tell you that, right? Like, and the dentist knows that it's safe to tell you that you should floss more because everybody needs to floss more. Some people don't do it at all, that that's extra bad or extra harmful over time. And some people do it, you know, quite a bit and are, you know, mostly compliant and that's great. But everybody probably could could benefit from doing it a little bit more. And I think acknowledging that that it's like that a little bit is, is okay, right? One of the things I like to do is I leave myself a broken spec at the end of the day as part of how I know where to pick up the next day. And so like find ways to do for yourself that are beneficial, those habits, and then let that shine, right? So, so let other people see your actions. You know, I learned Ruby back in 2003 working for an organization that was a C embedded C shop. Right. I was kind of sneaking it in, doing a bunch of ancillary tooling and by proving that I could be much more efficient at what I was doing by building all these tools, like some of the other team members who would have been completely resistant to it. If I would said, hey, let's learn this different programming language started coming to me and saying, hey, can you show me how some of this stuff works? And like that often can be a really beneficial way to to make those changes that it doesn't have to be epic. It doesn't have to be everything. It's okay if you have, let's say you have a test suite and like a third of the tests are broken. And you see this all the time where it's like, this, well, this, this sort of works or these eight tests are flapping, right? They, they, you know, and you can take days trying to fix flapping tests. It's really hard to nail those down. Mark them as pending and move on and make sure that all the new stuff is covered, right? It's okay to draw that line in the sand and say, okay, but from here on out, we're going to try and do this differently. Like that's okay. And they, over time, you'll chip away at that, that technical debt. You don't have to do all one big balloon payment. It's not all, all one or bust, right? That coming up with, you know, a payment plan for that is a reasonable approach. And then, then you forgive yourself 
the guilt of it and try and take that out of the equation, right? It doesn't have to be, it's not punitive, right? It's, hey, if we want these benefits, maybe we can try and do these things. I've been doing it for the last couple of weeks and these are the benefits I've seen for it. The other thing is I really, whenever I set a goal like that for myself, I set a time frame with it. My wife and I just switched our morning schedule and we set a two week time frame. We're not going to talk about whether it's working or not for two weeks because the first couple of days are going to be rough because it's a new time, you know, it's a new schedule. We're getting the kids up. We're trying to get them out, you know, get them ready to start the day differently than we were before. And the first couple of days aren't going to go smoothly, right? Today was my first day when the baby decided to wake up at 4.45 instead of at 6, right? So that's fine. By having a time frame of when you're going to check in, you can give it a shot that's fair as opposed to the first time you meet resistance, just like flipping the table over and like walking away. I like that idea of one of the things we've tried to do over the years is I've tried to use language around like, let's pilot this out for a while. You know, like, and I like that idea of like setting like a very specific time window when you can come back and revisit it again. Cause, cause there's been a bunch of things I'm thinking about that we've, I've said, let's pilot this, that we've just kept doing and that's great. And there's other things that I think we've never had a conversation, but it stopped happening. And then I guess you could say we technically piloted it, but we never officially just said, nope, I guess that didn't work. But I could probably list off like a huge list of things right now of things that I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that? I said that was seemed like a good idea at the time. It's always it's an interesting challenge there. And I, I like that idea around, you know, just reminding people that like, you know, if, let's say you take that example of uh, you have a uh, your test suite isn't passing right now and it hasn't been for a while. And so it just feels like it's getting neglected and ignored. And so nobody's paying attention to the build anymore. You could figure out a way to get it passing now. So that you, it's a limited subset of tests is better than no tests, and you just deciding as a team that you don't care about it because that has long-term consequences to the culture of that team. And there's ways to try to like course correct that, and so it takes time and patience and some discipline, I suppose. So, and broken windows are a big deal, right? Like if you have one broken window, you tend to eventually see the house decline rapidly. And so by just patching up, putting a board on that one window is okay. Even if you can't replace the window right now, just board it up so that it's not just like going to continue to decay, I think is really, really worthwhile. So a couple of quick last questions. One that I like to ask everybody, do you have a non-technical, non-software development related book that you find yourself recommending to peers? So... I just finished Atomic Habits because I heard that that was required reading for this podcast. <laughs> um, but I think that my recommendation will be uh, Brain Rules. John, yeah, John Medina. It talks a lot about brain science and um, sort of what we know about neuroscience and all these different behavioral things and how they might apply to the modern world. And he starts the book talking, saying that uh, if you take everything you know about brain science today and try to design the worst possible uh, learning environment, you would get the K through 12 classroom. And if you took everything you know about brain science and tried to apply the worst possible working environment, you would get a cubicle, right? And so then he talks about like why those things are. Um, and it's just really engaging and a super good book. I actually got this recommendation from the very first Rails podcast way, way back in the day when Joffrey was doing it. Well, and where can listeners uh, follow your thoughts on software development online? So uh, Nachi.com has uh, a blog that we post as we do the things um, and post where and when uh, we're speaking. Uh, the other place you can usually find me is sdruby.com. 
Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable Rob. Thanks so much for talking shop with us. Thanks, Robbie. It's been great. 